well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you're with me on the program today. Coming up, we're going to be talking with Cody Wisniewski uh, from the Firearms Policy, well, actually the General Counsel and Vice President of Legal for the FPC Action Foundation. That is a mouthful. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things, actually. The uh, Rahimi case, uh, which is, you know, percolating at the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, the Bruin response bills that we have seen in uh, states across the country, including New Jersey, as well as, you know, where Cody thinks we are right now. A little more than a year after Bruin. What uh, what changes hath Bruin wrought? We'll get to that here in just a moment. Before we do, however, <clears throat> Biden's America. It's crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch me next time you go to the grocery store. And the digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that is why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews, and they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call Gold Co. today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call 855-412-3806 today. That's Gold Co. at 855-412-3806. And now let's uh, get right to our conversation with Cody Wisniewski of uh, FPC's Action Foundation uh, about the uh, changing legal landscape when it comes to our right to keep and bear arms. Take a look and a listen. Cody, thanks so much for coming to the show today. It's great talking with you yeah thank you for having me happy to be here absolutely uh, and i want to make sure that i get your title correct so can you tell me what it is yes so i am general counsel and vice president of legal at fpc action foundation okay now what is fpc action foundation relationship to the farmers policy coalition yeah we work together on a lot of cases so i still uh so i'll represent fpc which is you know the membership organization uh and i'll oversee the uh the litigation portfolio so i help uh fpc with all of the uh the fun cases that people like to follow along <laughs> and there are a lot of uh, cases going on um do you have any idea how many cases you were involved with at the moment can you even keep track yeah <laughs> i do uh yeah, we have about 53 active cases across the country, and that's just like direct rep litigation cases. Uh, so those are everywhere from, you know, California to New York, everywhere in between. Uh, and that doesn't include, you know, the cases that we do amicus briefs in, that doesn't include our research research portfolio uh, and all of our other work. Yeah, and, and the amicus briefs are important because, you know, the next case that's coming up before the Supreme Court, uh, U.S. versus Rahimi, the, this is not a case that uh fpc or any of the major organizations brought right this is a public defender uh who brought this case uh up to the supreme court correct yeah rahimi has a has a federal defender uh and that's the uh the lead attorney on the case for uh for rahimi's defense has fpc uh filed a brief in that case are you all planning on filing a brief so we're keeping a close eye on what's going on so briefs uh rahimi's brief isn't due until late september mid-september uh, and so any briefs that are filed in support of Rahimi will be filed after his brief is due. Uh, so we're keeping a close eye on it. It's a really, you know, interesting case. It's one of those cases where the the principle that underlies it and the ruling are going to matter, you know, have, have potential to matter a lot. 
but there's, of course, like in any legal case, there's a, you know, a fact pattern that can be read a certain way and can be used a certain way to try and, and get a broader win against the principle, which is what we're watching for closely. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, look, I don't think anybody would say that uh, Zaki Rahimi is the the poster child uh, for a Second Amendment case. But this this issue isn't about Zaki Rahimi, right? This issue is ultimately and, that, and that's what the government is going to try to make it about. This is a bad guy who shouldn't own guns. But the real question is whether a civil restraining order, uh, you know, comports with the history, text and tradition test that was laid out in Bruin. Can you deprive somebody of their right to keep and bear arms based on nothing more than a civil restraining order. Is that how is that how you all read this case? Dead on. Yeah, you got it exactly right. The problem here is that the federal statute is incredibly expansive. So we've heard of these 922G cases, right? These are these, pardon me, these cases that have been coming up that are dealing with, you know, the so-called felon dispossession statute. It's not actually just targeted towards felons. Uh, you know, the the disarmament surrounding, um, you know, drug use, and then also this lesser referred to provision, which is for a, a civil protection order. And then in the provision under um, under 922 G8 C2, which is the kind of super subsection of the subsection, it actually just allows people to be disarmed, not just under a civil protection order, but without any finding of them actually being dangerous. And when you look to the history, when you look to, you know, that time surrounding uh, ratification of the Second Amendment, it's clear that there weren't these broad disarmament statutes. They were very focused and it was always focused on or or almost always focused on dangerousness, setting aside, of course, the statutes that were blatantly racist and discriminatory, which obviously don't inform our understanding of constitutionally protected rights. Yeah. And this is, you know, it's funny because the government wants to use those statutes, right, uh, to, to bolster their case. But they they don't want to say, well, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're arguing that these racist laws were OK. Uh, basically, they're taking the tact. It seems like, OK, yeah, these laws were unconstitutional, but the basis for those laws, uh, you know, ruling an entire class of people to be dangerous. Well, that's just fine and dandy. Yeah. Several governments across the country have taken that position. You know, the AG in California submitted an entire spreadsheet of all the laws that they were going to rely on in in one of our cases. And in that spreadsheet, right, it's just chock full of these laws that disarmed uh, slaves, freedmen, you know, Native American, Indian tribes, um, and Catholics. Catholics were disarmed a lot uh, at the founding. They were really worried about, you know, the the Catholics taking up arms and and partnering up with the loyalists that still lived in, you know, modern day Canada. Um, But then at the end of, of the AG statement, he he went and said, you know, oh, well, of course, you know, they, these support our position, but we, we, you know, we don't endorse the content or their, their discriminatory nature. And I don't know how you can rely on a law that disarms slaves to support your modern gun control agenda and then just ignore the fact that that was specifically targeted at slavery. Like, it, it's astounding to me that the jumps that they make. The only thing that I can take away from that is that essentially, you know, California views most of the people that live there as slaves to the state. And and I'm not really sure what else we're supposed to draw from it. But yeah, they point to these blatantly discriminatory laws to try and justify their modern gun control efforts when they don't actually have any analogous, you know, link to those this modern day uh, gun control. And 
we as a country have amended the constitution since that point and have fully prohibited anything like those laws from coming into place again. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, my attitude is as this country has progressed, we have continually strived imperfectly to become that more perfect union, right? So, who we the people is today is not who we the people might have been back in 1791. But the rights that we the people possess haven't changed, right? Who gets to exercise those rights has broadened. And I think that's a very good thing. Um, but the rights themselves are fundamentally the same that they were in 1791. The gun control advocates and the Biden administration argue that, in essence, uh, that right was was so limited to begin with that it can be regulated into non-entity uh, at this point. Yeah, and that's what's so important when you, you know, when you're talking about the Rahimi case and, and other cases is there's an underlying natural right here, you know, a natural right that pre-exists the government, pre-existed the Second Amendment, and every human being has that natural right. You know, the question here is, does the government have the power to stop Rahimi from exercising that natural right based solely on a civil protection order? Now, there are a lot of other things in, in Rahimi's past and, and in the, you know, in the fact pattern um, that would probably, you know, weigh in a, in a different favor. But what's clear here is just the, the facts specifically of this subsection. And I think a lot is going to get lost in this case. It's going to be one of those cases where all you're going to hear about is, you know, Rahimi's past and Rahimi's actions that aren't at issue in the case. Um, and the, the fact is, it's the, the underlying principle that really matters. And so we have to be able to peel away those layers and look at that underlying principle and look at not just how this is going to impact Rahimi, but instead how this case will impact, you know, the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people around the country who, you know, might be uh, might be otherwise deprived of their rights that they're not, you know, that there's no historical justification to do so. Absolutely. And in the case of Zaki Rahimi, again, I mean, there are allegations of violence, uh, uh, you know, long before and after uh, this uh, uh, civil restraint order was issued. But then you have a case like Range versus Garland right out of the Third Circuit. And this is a case where a guy wasn't even convicted of a felony offense. Uh, it was a misdemeanor that was punishable by more than a year in prison in Pennsylvania at the time. But it was basically he was accused of falsifying his income on an application for food stamps. Uh, and here we are decades later. And Brian Rain still cannot lawfully own a firearm. Now, this is another case that the Supreme Court could take up this fall. Is that is that right? Yeah, it could. So it, it is on petition to the Supreme Court right now. Um, and so they'll they'll meet and review and decide whether or not they're going to hear argument in that case. And you're exactly right. And that's the problem with, you know, if you focus too much in on just the, you know, just the Rahimi case, you, you know, you lose the forest for the trees. You're talking right there about 922 G1, right? And so that deprives, federally deprives anybody who is convicted of a crime that's punishable by more than one year's imprisonment from possessing a firearm for life. Now, you don't have to spend more than one year's in prison, more than one year in prison, and it certainly doesn't have to be a felony. So if you're convicted of a misdemeanor that's punishable by a year and a day, and you never set foot in a prison or in a jail, you are still disarmed under that statute. And it applies to people like Range, where I think it was yard work on the side was the income that he wasn't disclosing. It applies to people we've seen cases before. There was a gentleman who was importing illegal cassette tapes in 1987, uh, who is forever prohibited from possessing a firearm. There was a woman who, uh, you know, 
lied on her tax return. And the court said that she deprived the government of the property it was due uh, in order to justify upholding the law. So these are the kinds of people that are being disarmed under these statutes. It's not, it's not, you know, just targeted at actual dangerous people like it should be. It's focused and it's so broad that it just grabs all of these people who, you know, might have made a, a you know, forgot to disclose their their you know lawn care income on on the, on a federal application and thus have have you know deprived the government of property it was due uh in the case of taxes according to the court so yeah, it's, I mean, it's just offensively broad absolutely the the idea that a bootleg white snake cassette uh would uh <laughs> you know deprive you of uh, keeping and bearing arms forevermore is, is ridiculous. But, you know, I, I think it's beneficial for the government to have Rahimi come first, right? Because they can make this case that, ah, you know, this guy is such a dangerous person. This law has to be upheld without necessarily having to get into how this law is so broadly applied to people who clearly have exhibited no signs of, of dangerousness. Um, do you have any concerns about how these cases are stacking up at the Supreme Court as well as the uh, the move by the Supreme Court to, you know, not get involved in these early emergency appeals in places like New York and Illinois. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of common in in if, if you ever follow the court. I think what's really new about it is it's kind of new for for us in the Second Amendment space and in the gun space, right? Um, we've had the opposite that we've just kind of seen the court broadly ignore um, the issue for a long period of time, right? Between Heller and New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, right, you only really had two things go up. You had Caetano in 2016, which was that per curiam opinion about stun guns. Mm -hmm. And then you had uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. City of New York, which was the case that was granted before Bruin that uh, New York, you know, sprinted and changed their law so that they could moot out the case. So, you know, we were were more used to the court just kind of not weighing in on the issue. And so now that there are so many things going up and that it seems like the court is more or, or more willing, at least, to take on these issues, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years. But for people who don't generally follow the Supreme Court, I mean, the Supreme Court is, is basically the only court in the country that gets to choose the cases it hears. And it takes less than 1% of cases that are presented to it. So, you know, there will be thousands of cases that will be petitioned to the court and they're going to hear about 60 to 70 in a term. So it's it's incredible. It's very common to have cases go up and just nothing happen and nothing happen. The difference that we're seeing now is that these lower courts and these circuit courts under Bruin are striking down gun control laws. And they're striking down not just state gun control laws, but they're striking down federal gun control laws as well. And when that happens, the Supreme Court gets a lot more interested. And of course, you know, the United States has to then be the party that's asking the Supreme Court for review. And when the United States is asking, it's also more likely that the court grants uh, grants review. So you've got, you know, you've got this Rahimi case where Rahimi won at the Fifth Circuit. So the, the United States petition, you've got the bump stock cases, right? You've got um, Cargill, our cases, Gates, and you've got Harden that are all on petition at the Supreme Court. Well, the government lost in two of those. And so now the government is the one that is asking the Supreme Court to review. And then, of course, we had this, you know, we had our Vanderstock case, the case about the ATF's frame or receiver rule, 
go up to the Supreme Court. And unfortunately, they they granted a stay of the effect of the decision. But, you know, the substance of the, de- the decision, the reasoning <clears throat> remains in place. And we're going to be arguing that at the Fifth Circuit. And, you know, there's another potential where, uh, you know, when we when we uh, defend our win at the Fifth Circuit, that the government will be, you know, could be in a position again to be the appealing party. So there it's not uncommon, but we're seeing a shift that I think is really going to change the way that the Supreme Court weighs in on these Second Amendment cases. I, mean, I, I hope so, because we also are, you know, you talk about the, the laws that are being struck down, but we've also seen, I think, some abuses of the Bruin decision to uphold. Uh, some laws, right? We have a federal judge uh, declare that, well, magazines aren't arms. They're not protected by the Second Amendment or, uh, you know, AR-15s, modern sporting rifles, the most commonly sold rifle in the country are are unusually dangerous. And so therefore they're not protected by the Second Amendment. You know, the the, the hopes that Bruin would sort of, you know, smack down these activist judges, um, clearly that's not the case. But do you think that it's become harder for these judges to try to justify these decisions because of the Bruin test? Absolutely. Uh, well, two things. One, we've seen, you know, significantly more victories after Bruin than than we saw after Heller. More in one year post-Bruin than, than after Heller because courts, you know, Bruin really just told the lower courts, hey, you know what we said in Heller? We really mean it. We, that's what we really want you to be doing. And so I think that reiteration kind of helped in, in a lot of different courts at least. Um, the other side is, yes, we're seeing bad history, right? We're seeing we're seeing judges point to, you know, statutes that are analogous, statutes that shouldn't be informing um, the analysis. But what's important is they have to tangle with the history, right? We've stepped into a new era where Second Amendment litigation is in the realm of originalism, right? The original public meaning of the Constitution, the original public meaning of the Second Amendment, what those words meant when they were drafted and ratified in 1791. So even the courts that are coming out and are making bad analogies and are upholding, you know, some of these laws that should be struck down as unconstitutional, they're forced to tangle with the history. They're forced to do originalism and they're forced to put their cards on the table. When you were dealing with, you know, these social science data points and these bal- this balancing of rights, they could kind of just lose the right in the mush of social studies. And now they're forced to actually, you know, do originalism. And I think it's bringing a lot of things to light. It's making a lot of people aware of these, you know, the statutes, the kind of statutes that the government is relying on for support. But it's also a step in the right direction. You know, we're moving more and more to a place where we're having the right conversation. So it's, it's you know, it's easy to get disheartened when you see, you know, orders come out of certain courts that are just so obviously bad. But I think, you know, what we'd like to convey or what I'd like to you know, hope that people can take away is that, you know, it's it, we are trending in the right direction. There are good things happening. We are getting injunctions. We're striking down laws. We're tallying up wins. You know, we're beating the Biden. Every, uh, you know, federal uh, ETF rule that has been uh, published in the last 10 years, right, the bump stock rule, the frame receiver rule. Uh, and the pistol brace rule have all been in some way either struck down or enjoined. And that's massive. So there are a lot of wins and it is important that we're talking about history. Absolutely. And, you know, and listen, I mean, speaking of history, you're right that these things don't change overnight. Um, And I think that this is the civil rights fight of our time. Um, I live in central Virginia uh, outside of a little town called Farmville, which uh, Oliver Anthony made famous a couple of weeks ago. But 
Um, you know, that that town was actually the bulk of the cases in what became Brown versus Board of Education. Um, it was kind of rolled into the the Topeka cases. And after Brown versus Board of Education came down, Prince Edward County, Virginia, shut down the public schools for five years rather than integrate. It took another Supreme Court case in 1965 before the schools reopened. So, you know, these things don't happen overnight. Um, change is not as rapid as we would like to see when it comes to, you know, recognizing our, our fundamental right to keep and bear arms. But I think that you're right that we are trending in the right direction. And I think a decade from now, we're going to have a very, very different legal landscape than what we have today. Um, and we're going to have a lot more support in the courts for our right to keep and bear arms. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can you can see it. Look at concealed carry. So look at a map of what concealed carry laws were like in the 1980s. Right, just about every state in the country outright banned it. Uh, you know, some states had some super restrictive permitting processes, but it was really difficult to be able to conceal carry in, in the 1980s. And now today, we've got what 27 states that are free carry states where you can, as a you know, a matter of your right, carry a firearm in in the manner that you see fit, uh, so long as you're not a prohibited person. I mean, that's a huge shift over just. 40, 40 years, 40 yeah. years. <laughs> and that's what we're seeing. And, you know, something you said is really important, right? This it's a, it's a process, right? Our rights weren't restricted in this way in one fell swoop, right? They didn't pass one broad overarching gun control statute that stripped everybody of their, of all of these individual facets of their right. It was done incrementally. And, you know, what we're seeing is those things fall statute by statute, subsection by subsection. And those are, that's really important. You know, you're not necessarily going to walk in and strike down, you know, the biggest gun control statute tomorrow, but you can strike down all of these individual provisions in all of these different cases and start getting to the point where people's rights are actually being respected and hopefully to a place where they're actually being protected. All right. Now, listen, we're running out of time. I can keep you all day, but I know you got a lot of work to do here. So I'm going to ask you, of all of the Bruin response bills that you've seen, and a lot of them are, are you know, very, very similar. Um, what what do you have like one state in particular that you think has gone uh, over, more overboard than the others in terms of uh, lashing out at gun owners and the Supreme Court? Yeah, so we, uh, you know, we are currently engaged against New Jersey's uh, Bruin response bill, and we just just filed a brief in that case not not that long ago. And. That one is is you know particularly offensive. Any state that is deciding to just basically work around Bruin and and try and stop people from being able to carry in public, uh, you know, ranks pretty high on my offensive list. But uh, New Jersey's is is pretty bad. I mean, it it really restricts what people can do and makes it to you know basically is like yeah sure you can have your permit but you can't go anywhere with your firearm. So it. It's this kind of roundabout, insidious way of making everywhere a sensitive place. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. We saw that in Montgomery County, Maryland, too. I, I looked at the, uh, the the map of the gun-free zones uh, and then the map of the population, uh, you know, where people live in Montgomery County. And, man, it's, it's almost identical, right? Anywhere people live, that's where your second rights are denied. Um, all right. Yeah. Well, I got, I got one more follow-up for you, one quick one. How many times during the writing of a, a, an average brief do you have to stop yourself from typing F you know and then hitting send? 
I think that's uh, I think that's privileged information. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Cody, listen, man, thanks so much for everything you do. I really appreciate you coming on the program. I would love to have you back whenever you can carve out a few minutes, but uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for letting me talk about our work and the cases. And, uh, you know, hopefully everybody can uh, follow along and, and watch some more victories. Absolutely. Cody Wisniewski joining us from Fire of FPC Action Foundation. Foundation. There you go. Right here on Barron Arms Cam and Company. Appreciate Cody joining us on the program. And uh, now let's get to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day and our recidivist report. We've actually got a twofer. Yes, our Armed Citizen story is also our recidivist report with a uh, headline from the website CWB Chicago. Armed carjacker got shot by concealed carry holder while on probation for a carjacking case. Yes. You know, I'd say only in Chicago, but I don't think so. Actually, that probably can happen in a lot of major cities. And until a few years ago, this would have been impossible in Chicago because Illinois had no concealed carry law. That has changed, and now tens of thousands of Cook County residents do possess a concealed carry license and are protecting themselves, although in this case, the uh, rideshare driver probably lost his job as a result of asking, uh, acting in self-defense. Uh, 20-year-old Derek Benson, ordered held without bail by uh, Judge Charles Beach, according to CWB Chicago, on a fresh charge of discharging a firearm during an aggravated vehicular hijacking, as well as discharging a firearm during an armed robbery. Uh, the rideshare driver allegedly picked up Benson and a juvenile female back on August 12th, shortly after midnight. Benson allegedly pulled out a gun, pointed it at the driver's head while sitting in the back seat as the uh, juvenile female, also in the back seat, patted down his right pants pocket. Assistant State's Attorney John Kyle said during Benson's bail hearing that the driver, a 26-year-old concealed carry holder, slowed down his SUV, then jumped out while it was still moving. He ran a short distance, pulled a gun from his left pants pocket, and fired three shots at his car. Benson returned fire, tried to get into the driver's seat of the vehicle, but the SUV wouldn't operate because the key fob was out of range in the driver's pocket. Benson and the girl then ran from the SUV as a passing motorist called 911. Chicago police were already on their way, according to CBB Chicago, because the uh, gunfire had triggered a spot a shot spotter officers found uh, two phones in the SUV, but the driver's phone, which he left behind when he bailed out was gone. Yeah, that's right. The thieves left theirs, but uh, took the drivers. The cops found the girl about a block away with a, a graze wound to her right arm. Uh, one of the phones in the SUV was hers. According to the uh, prosecutor, the victim's phone is found on the same block. Benson, meanwhile, found in the entrance of an apartment with a firearm about three feet away. Police said Benson received a gunshot wound to his leg. Now, prosecutors also said that Benson is currently on probation for possessing a stolen motor vehicle after he was found driving a woman's Jeep after it had been carjacked in August of 2021. Prosecutors had initially charged Benson with vehicular hijacking. But in that case, they agreed to let him plead down to a lesser charge of possessing a stolen motor vehicle in December in exchange for the probationary sentence. Benson, according to CBB Chicago, also adjudicated delinquent as a juvenile for robbery the year before in 2020. Uh, and once again, now facing some serious charges. Judge Beach uh, noted that uh, Benson... Uh, was shot, which he says is, quote, tangential evidence of his proximity in time to that offense. So the fact that you cannot comply with the terms of your probation tells me that you probably cannot comply with the terms of bail. Accordingly, you will be held without bail. We'll see how long that lasts. As for the uh, rideshare driver, again, both Uber and Lyft have policies requiring 
that uh, both drivers and passengers be disarmed, a uh, prohibition, by the way, that Benson allegedly ignored. Uh, the driver apparently ignored as well, and uh, likely, again, looking for new work because we've seen this time and time again. Even when folks act in self-defense, if they're behind the wheel while they're driving for Uber or Lyft, they're tossed. Now, today's uh, good deed of the day. From Nebraska, where a a man saved a child from a drowning in uh, Fremont County at uh, Wabansee State Park. This happened just a a couple of days ago. The young child, apparently autistic, had wandered away from his family. And uh, Terry Travis, who's an employee of the Fremont County Secondary Roads Department, was driving through the park when he saw this child, five years old, standing on the dock uh, at the uh, pond at Wabansee Park. Uh, He was by himself, and that's when Terry Travis saw the child actually jump into the water. He immediately took action. He left his vehicle, ran towards the pond. He could hear the child screaming, saw the child go under the water. Thankfully, uh, Travis was able to reach in from the dock, grab the kid, pull him up to safety. The family arrived on scene just a short time later. He was uh, checked by Sydney Rescue at the scene, transported by private vehicle to a Nebraska hospital for evaluation. But it looks like everything's okay. Uh, Thankfully, again, because of the quick thinking and uh, fast actions of Terry Travis in the right place at the right time, most importantly, willing and able to do the right thing. So, uh, Terry Travis, thank you for your very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. But I want to thank you for being a part of the program, as always. I'm looking forward to being back with you again tomorrow. Don't forget, by the way, Wednesdays, it's VIP Gold Live Chat Day. Hot Airs Ed Morrissey and I will be kicking around the day's top stories at 130 Eastern. You can be a part of it. I'd love for you to be a part of the conversation. All you have to do, go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As our way of saying thanks for showing your support. We're going to give you exclusive content, news stories, and analysis, as well as things like this uh, very fun VIP Gold Live Chat, my favorite hour of the work week. And again, just go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. You can find out more information there. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.